And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. Welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today. And it is Friday. We are closing out the week here at the dojo. And like I said, uh, we want to finish out strong. You know, um, getting physically fit means that uh, when you're lifting weight or maybe you're jogging or something, you, you want to make the, the last few steps, the last few reps to be uh, good ones, right? And uh, that's the same thing true here for the dojo as we're trying to become better at explaining, defending the faith with clarity, charity, and confidence. We want to finish strong at the end of the week, and we're going to do that because we have our good friend William Hemsworth with us. He's going to come up on the other side of the break, and we're going to dive into Scripture and specifically, we're going to look at uh, some of the biblical roots for the sacrament of confession. So I, I love it when we're able to tie apologetics into our spiritual life, because after all, it is Lent, and uh, it's a time of penance. So uh, it'd be great to take a look at uh, the biblical basis for what we do as Catholics, and that way you'll be able to uh, enrich your own spiritual life and also help other people learn about the Catholic faith and the biblicalness of the Catholic faith. Uh, so that's coming up on the other side of the break. On this side of the break, we're going to finish out the week with our Finding the Fallacy. And as you know, here on Fridays, we switch things around. Instead of just doing an informal fallacy, we're going to take a look at a propaganda technique Today's propaganda technique is thought-terminating cliches or thought-stopping cliches. So uh, that's uh, something that's used a lot today, and we need to be aware of that because uh, it's a way of, uh, well, we'll get to that when we get to that. Like all propaganda techniques, they, they try to fly in under our cognitive radar screens to influence us. Also, we're going to meet early church father. Today's early church father is actually a whole bunch of uh, early fathers. It is the Council of Ephesus, a very, very important early church council, which uh, defined Mary as mother of God, the Theotokos. And uh, yeah, so we have our docket filled and ready to go. But before we do that, I want to welcome all of you to the show properly by welcoming our live stream audience along with all of you listening on radio around the country. And I want to welcome all of you listening via podcast <coughs> Excuse me, around the world. It's great that you're on board. And it's great to um, know that we're out there. Um, in fact, I want to share a story. <coughs> Excuse me. I got a, it's a, here in Michigan, the weather is constantly changing. And so it's like your body tries to keep up with all the changes. Uh, so please excuse the cough here every now and then. But anyway, uh, I was on Sam Shamoon's show on YouTube. Uh, it's known as Shamoonian if you want to type it in or just put down Sam Shamoon with William Albrecht. And we were critiquing a evangelical 
position on uh, the Old Testament canon. And uh, <coughs> this is why I love doing apologetics today. We were on the show. We did our presentation. It was the end of the show. Sam had a couple of questions he wanted to throw out at us. And one particular one was he asked whether or not St. Jerome uh, changed his view. Because Jerome is actually against the Deuterocanon. He believed it was apocrypha. And it was based on actually some faulty reasoning that we can now demonstrate uh, was wrongly based. But nevertheless, you know, is there any, uh, uh, what's the evidence for Jerome changing his mind and following the church on the matter? And, uh, at the, you know, usually at the end of programs, that's the worst time to do Q&A. You should always do Q&A before you do the talks because your mind's nice and fresh. So, um, and I, I, I told Sam, I don't believe there's ever a time where Jerome ever actually says, I'm wrong, these are scriptures, follow the church. But I, I said, you know, I do remember reading a passage from him where he tells somebody to follow Pope Innocent I in everything, and Pope Innocent affirmed these books. So that, that would be a clue that, yeah, he did capitulate to the church. But I couldn't remember the passage. It was just a faint memory. Well, the cool thing is, in the Internet age, I got an email today from someone who saw that show, and uh, they remember seeing something, I think, in a Spanish-language website, which had the quote from Jerome. So it's like, wow, that is so cool that we can uh, tap into each other's uh, experience and help each other. So hopefully this show uh, it will do the same thing for you, that we'll be able to uh, help you out when you have questions. And uh, yeah, okay, uh, I want to just jump to the Finding the Fallacy today. This one's a short one. It's a propaganda technique. Thought terminating cliches. Uh, cliches. It is a commonly used phrase, sometimes passing as folk wisdom, to quell cognitive dissonance. In other words, it's like a cliche that people will throw out to stop you from thinking or pursuing a particular line of thought. Like, one cliche used a lot today is, well, that's a religious view. Okay, so if someone says, uh, you know, maybe abortion is wrong, someone's uh, the thought-stopping cliche, well, that's a religious view, that's a kind of um, underhanded way of cueing the person that they're not permitted to think in that direction. Uh, so uh, just by throwing out that's religious is a way to stop that cold, right, as if, somehow religious thought it has no bearing to play on questions like that um and there's many many other ones too you know just the things that you know that usually uh they will be some sort of phobic thing you could put whatever you want before that uh but you know if you say well that's so and so phobic well that's a thought stopping cliche it's meant as a social cue for you to stop thinking that way and button up and uh, and like I said, it's used a lot. And it's very powerful, too. You need to be aware of that and call people out when they do that. Because uh, if you don't, you, it just continues on. And there's this fear factor that goes on where uh, people can control how you think and how you speak. Even though they never actually argue for or against something in terms of evidence. So that's our Finding the Fellowships for today, thought-terminating cliché or thought-stopping cliché. Today's early church father is the Council of Ephesus. 
The first and second ecumenical councils of Nicaea in 325 AD and the Constantinople Council in 381 AD had defended the divinity of the Son and of the of the Holy Spirit, respectively, and their consubstantiality between the Father. Now the theological explanation progressed in the area of Christology. That's, you know, theology about Christ. And it became necessary to define more clearly the relationship between the divine and human natures in Christ. And in this developing theology, and as has already uh, been explained in other programs, uh, the writings of various men clashed in terms of how to explain correctly Christ's divine nature and human nature and the relationship between the two. And this clash also was between two different schools, between the Antiochian school at Antioch and the Alexandrian school in Alexandria, Egypt. And it was concretized in the persons of the patriarchs of Constantinople and Alexandria, the Antiochian Nestorius and the Alexandrian Cyril. Nestorius uh, failed to perceive a sufficiently intimate union between the natures of Christ, and although he does speak of one person in Christ. He did effect hold that Christ, the incarnate word, is two persons. For he clings to Aristotelian notion that there is no nature without a person. So if you have two natures, there must be two persons, according to that logic. He therefore denied that Mary is the Theotokos, or mother of God, preferring to call her only Christotokos, the mother of Christ. Cyril's terminology is also a bit defective, and he can speak of Christ as having one nature, as if in this context the nature he really meant person, but does nevertheless give a, hand, uh, a kind of handle to monophysism, which is a heresy that tried to combine the divine and human natures into a kind of third uh, single nature. The problem with Nestorius's theology and his preaching was referred to Rome, where Nestorius was already suspected of having given refuge to the Pelagian Celestius. With Roman decision going against him, Nestorius invited Emperor Theodosius II to convoke the Third Ecumenical Council, which met in Ephesus on Pentecost in 431. Nestorius arrived in Ephesus with 16 of his suffragans, closely followed by Syria, Cyril with his 50 bishops. John, the patriarch of Antioch and Nestorius' sympathizer, deliberately postponed his own arrival. The three papal legates uh, were delayed by storms at sea. Cyril, under the impression that he himself was the papal representative, opened the council on June 22nd over the protest of the 68 bishops. Nestorius refused to attend, and in the opening session, 153 bishops were present. Nestorius was deposed. Ultimately, more than 200 bishops signed to the deposition of Nestorius. Four days after the first session, John of Antioch arrived with the suffragan bishops from Syria, 43 strong. They protested that the council, having proceeded without them and opened their own synod, at which they decreed the deposition of Cyril. And about this time, the, time, the papal legates arrived and agreed to recognize the sessions over which Cyril had presided. On July 17th, in the fifth session of Ephesus, deposed and excommunicated John. And that's about our early church father for today, actually a council, the Council of Ephesus. Coming up next, we're going to be chatting with William Hemsworth about biblical grounds for confession. Stay tuned.
Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody, at Hands-On Apologetics. And it is Lent, the penitential season. Many of us will go to confession. And, you know, this is a great way to tie in apologetics with our spiritual walk. What better way to learn the faith and live the faith when you tie them together? And so we're going to look at the biblical grounds for confession with our good friend William Hemsworth. William, as you know, is a former ordained Baptist and Lutheran who converted to Catholicism while attending seminary. He's the husband and father of four who's passionate about passing on the faith. You can check out his great stuff at williamhemsworth.com. Especially, he has a fantastic YouTube channel, which I was privileged to come on a couple of times. It is the Bible Catholic. Just check it out, or you could type in William Hemsworth on YouTube and, and check out the great stuff he's producing. William, welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics. Hey, Gary. Thanks for having me back on. How are you doing today? Oh, I am I am doing great. I cannot All right, play. Good. <laughs> Yeah, how are you doing? How is life in the Hemsworth household? Things are going pretty well. It's spring break right now over here, so the kids are kind of dispersed at Grandma's house and here. I have two. My two boys move out when there's a break. They go to Grandma's house. Okay. And you know that's fine. She's right up the street anyway. Not a big deal. But yeah, it's it's a beautiful time here in Tucson. We had some rain last night. It's uh it's warming back up a little bit. I'm not. That's all I'm going to say. But um, <laughs> it's, it's 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 a great it's a great time, and it's going to be a great Rub weekend. So. Rub I'm not rubbing okay. anything, and that's why. What's, I what's the te- tell me what the temperature is? What's uh, the I think temperature? T- I think today the high is 63. Uh, yeah, it's uh, we got some partic- uh, precipitation last night here, but in the form of snow. So <laughs> it, it rained pretty hard last night. It got down to 33, and then it's just how it is in Tucson. It warms back up. We pay for it in the summer, though. We pay for it in a big way. That's that's yes. the price we pay. Is this your rainy season? No, our rainy season is actually um, between July and September. Oh, that's when yeah. that's so the that's monsoon season. The moisture comes up from Mexico, and then we get pretty violent thunderstorms on a daily basis, and that's where we get all our rain. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, good to know. Good to know. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, confession, confession. Um, you know, your background before coming into the church is Baptist and Lutheran, and of course. Right. Uh, Baptists, you wouldn't have the the sacrament of confession. Lutherans, uh, they kind of have one. Depending on the synod you belong to, absolutely. Of course, like you said, Baptist, it's you make the confession of faith, and your sins are forgiven, past, present, and future. And you know, you're encouraged if you were to do something wrong to go to God in prayer and confess it. Um, not a necessity, but you're encouraged to do so. Um, Lutheran, depending on the synod you belong to, you may have. Um, confession in some way. I know the Wisconsin Synod, which is a more conservative synod, they actually observe the sacrament still. Hmm. Um, some of the more liberal ones, not so much. So it really depends. There's 40 different Lutheran denominations, Gary. So it really depends on which synod you're talking about. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I didn't know that. Uh, that many. There's a lot of them. There's the, I mean, there's the Wisconsin, there's yeah. Missouri Synod, ELCA, there's Orthodox Lutheran. Um, there's a bunch of different ones. It, so some of them are, some of them consist of maybe. Um, well, I was doing some research on it a couple of years ago. I think the smallest one consists of five churches. 
Oh, okay. Wow. So it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's kind of interesting the, to look at. You always hear about the big three, you know, the Wisconsin, right. uh, the Missouri, and uh, the evangelical. Uh, that's interesting. Right. Wow. Good stuff. Well, okay. So, uh, obviously, as a Baptist, you would probably say that confession would be uh, non-biblical, maybe even anti-biblical. Right. And you go back to the whole, um, you know, why do you have to confess your sins to a priest? Isn't he just a man? You know, then you get into, Jesus is our only mediator. Mm -hmm. But really, I mean, if you go back in Scripture, even all the way back to the beginnings of the Old Testament, you you have this idea of confession that's really entrenched in the Torah, in the you know specifically in Leviticus and a little bit in Numbers even. Um, so, for example, Leviticus uh, five verses five through six says, "When a man is guilty in any of these, he shall confess the sin he has committed, and he shall bring his guilt offering to the Lord for the sin which he has committed: a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin." And then later on in Leviticus 19 says, for he shall bring a a guilt offering for himself to the Lord, to the door of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin, which he has committed and the sin, which he has committed shall be forgiven him. So really early on, we see this idea of a priest being involved. Now to be clear, it's God who forgives sin. Mm-hmm. I mean, to be clear, but the priest is doing a penance. He was offering this animal in solidarity, if you will, to see that this person really is sorry. There is contrition there way back in the book of Leviticus. And what's what's really interesting, Gary, is we also read about this in, in Numbers. Numbers 5, 5 through 7 says, The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, If a man or woman commits a fault against his fellow man and wrongs him, thus breaking faith with the Lord, he shall confess the wrong he has done, restore his ill-gotten goods in full, and in addition give one-fifth of their value to the one he has wronged. And so we see right away confession, this idea of penance, restitution. Mm -hmm. Because God's grace is free. It's amazing. And confession, unfortunately, is a sacrament that um, it's not um, used as frequently as it should. Because I don't know about you, I probably sinned about 500 times before I came on the show today. Okay, I'm exaggerating. <laughs> but we all but we all mess up. We all fall short of the God's glory. And it's something we, we don't go to enough. Maybe it's not a convenient time, which is a whole other story. But we had this really early on. And Steve Ray said it best. When I was, when I was in the process of converting to the church, I got a hold of one of Steve Ray's um, CDs. That's how long ago. It was a CD I got a hold of on eBay. And he was talking about his story. And he, was, and he specifically mentioned his issues that he had with confession at one point about how God forgives. Why do we have to do penance and all this? And he, he had this story, Gary. And he said, if you're playing baseball outside and baseball goes through someone's window and you go and talk to your neighbor, the neighbor says, you know, you're forgiven. And then you start walking off. And the neighbor's like, wait, 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 my window's still broken. Who's going to fix my window? It's kind of really, it's really the same with our sin. And so when the priests way back in Leviticus are talking about forgiving these sins, it's because there were sins against the community. There was some wrong that was done, not just to the person who sinned, not just to God, but to the people around. And that's what our sin does to the church as well. We break our relationship with 
if it's a mortal sin, we break our relationship with God. I mean, just, and confession is what heals that. And we get back in full standing and we can go, we can have partake of the Eucharist and all, and all this later on. But penance helps. It's the proof that we are sorry, that we're not to say, oh, I'm sorry, whatever, and just go on, go on with our business. This idea of this restitution is really early on. And what's interesting is when I was researching this, Gary, I came across Leviticus chapter 7, verse 15, which I don't know about you. I don't really spend a whole lot of time on Leviticus. It's one of those <laughs> books where you kind of read through it, you're like banging your head against the wall. Like, come on. Because like, what, how does it apply to me? Well, we've just read two verses that really show how it does apply to us, especially when it comes into, into confession. But Leviticus 7.15 says, the flesh of the Thanksgiving sacrifice shall be eaten. Now, when a Thanksgiving sacrifice was offered, unleavened and leavened bread were offered. But if you sinned against the community, the consequence, you, you could not partake of that. Hmm. If we confess, if we do mortal sin now, what is our penalty? Yeah, don't be wrong. Hell's a penalty. But tomorrow, if I go to Mass, I shouldn't partake of the Eucharist, right? Right. So here's kind of that foreshadowing. And I found it very interesting. I never made that connection before. Yeah. And I'm sure there's a lot more to it. But when I looked into a little more, the word for Thanksgiving in Hebrew is T-O-D-A-H. It's a toda. And my Hebrew is not the best, so I probably mispronounced that. It's Greek equivalent, Eucharist. <laughs> very, very, very interesting there. Um, so the consequences for being unclean or sinning against the people, what, that, that's how you were cut off, is you couldn't partake of that. And so to be able to partake of it, you had to make confession, and the priest would have to do his thing. And in the New Covenant, which we have today, the priest absolves us. Now, again, it's God who forgives sins. I can't make that point enough. The priest is there in the person of Christ, we call it in persona Christi. And he's saying those words for us because we need to hear them. Hmm. I can't tell you how many times, Gary, as a Protestant, I would definitely confess sins when I was sorry. Absolutely. And by the way, we should do it now. As soon as we become aware of it, confess it, and then get to confession as soon as you can. Okay? Hmm. But <clears throat> hearing those words, I absolve you. They're powerful words. Because I do. I'm. I have this tendency to dwell on the things I have done over and over again, even when I know they're forgiven. And that's really a tool that the devil does try to keep us in his power and his grasp. Say you're not good enough. Look what you did. God's already forgotten about it. When we're forgiven, the priest says, "I absolve you." It's forgiven. It's gone. End of story. And Gary, um, today's mass readings were very powerful in this effect. I'm going to pull it up real quick. Sorry, I had it, I had it and my phone refreshed on me, <laughs> as technology has a tendency to do sometimes. But today's first Mass reading is from the Ezekiel chapter 18. Okay? None of the crimes he committed shall be remembered against him. He shall live because of the virtue he has practiced. And it's pretty powerful. I mean, there's a lot more to the passage there. Mm -hmm. But so much so much we can gain from the old Testament in regard to confession. And of course there's so much more in the new Testament, which we'll get to, 
But these three passages from Leviticus and Numbers show those Jewish roots of our faith, really, in regard to the sacrament of penance, sacrament of reconciliation or confession, as we call it, going way back to the earliest days, way before the church started, way back to the beginning of the Jewish people when they're out of Egypt, when they're wandering the desert, you know, for, for the promised land. Those foundations are laid way back then. And it's just, it's amazing when you realize it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's uh, those amazing connections that God had already prepared his people, you know, for the new covenant. And uh, today we're still living those out, even though, you know, it, it was uh, the roots who were laid down thousands of years ago. Yeah, it's it's awesome stuff. And uh, I love that passage from Leviticus with the Eucharist. I'm going to have to make a note during the break. <laughs> Put that up there for First Corinthians uh, eleven, you know, and right. put that there. Yeah, it'd so be, uh, definitely be a good connection for it. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, we're coming up to a break, so this would be a good place to pause. We're chatting with William Hemsworth, talking about the biblical roots of confession. Stay tuned, folks. More to come right after this. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with William Hemsworth, talking about the biblical roots of confession. And uh, actually, lots of lots of great points William made in the first segment. You know, sin is not only our vertical relationship with God, but it also affects the church. And, and then you showed how even in the Old Testament, you know, you have this recognition of that horizontal you know, that reconciliation with their brothers through the priestly sacrifice and also the need for restitution. And, uh, yeah, uh, uh, you could probably take it from there because uh, I, I think we could probably spend a whole show just on Old Testament roots. Right. So maybe do a, a couple, couple more. Um, okay. Second, Second Samuel uh, chapter 12, verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. So here we see this intermediary of sorts coming through the prophet Nathan. And for those who don't know the story, David messed up pretty badly. Okay. <laughs> um, he slept with Bathsheba and essentially he, he committed her husband to ride on the front line to be killed. And every Friday, and this is every, every Friday in the liturgy of the hours, we read Psalm 51 which is David's like penitential prayer when he comes to this realization of all these horrors that he did, you know, and Nathan, you know, the backstory is Nathan goes to, the, he tells the story, the King David about how there was this rich guy who had all these lambs and he went to this poor man and stole his lamb. And I'm paraphrasing. This is um, the WSV William standard version. <laughs> um, but essentially Nathan says, you're the man, you're the man that stole this poor man's lamb and et cetera, et cetera. But God forgives, and David needed to hear this. And so here's Nathan. The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. So we have this Old Testament prophet functioning as this intermediary of sorts to show God's forgiveness to King David. But, of course, the New Testament is chock full of all these things, though. And, of course, the New Testament, you know, fulfillment of the Old 
and we, we go to we come to the papacy, you know, Matthew chapter 16, verse eight, verses 18 and 19, which we, we use for the papacy. But what, what's the, at the end of those verses, I'm going to pull it up. I'll read it verbatim here. I'm not going to be able to find it now. But essentially it says what you have authority to bind and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, etc. So it's that ability, it's that authority to hold the keys to the kingdom of heaven, the keys to forgive sin, uh, the keys to recognize, to, re to retain sins even. So this is coming over to the New Testament. And of course, Matthew 18, 18 is kind of an extension of that. What a, in Matthew 16, we have the primary recipient of the keys, which is St. Peter. And then in Matthew 18, the keys are given to the rest of the apostles. And Jesus tells them, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So there's that authority to given to the earthly ministers to grant absolution, to grant forgive sins in his name. That's the key thing. It is God who forgives sins, okay? Yeah. But he has given his authority to ministers. And there's just two verses right there, two chapters away from each other, that show that. Now, one, one of the big things that we that we go through um, in regard to, the, is, to confession is John chapter 20. Now, at this point, Jesus has resurrected, and he comes, he comes, he breathes, uh, he breathes on the disciples. So it's the breath of the Holy Spirit. He's imparting the Holy Spirit into them. He says, if you, forgins the, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. Whatever sins you retain are retained. That's pretty plain to me right there. Okay, whatever sins you forgive are forgiven. Now, as a Protestant, I, and I heard this many times, this wasn't just me, that He's talking about that. They say that this um, that John is writing about the gospel here. It's the ability of the apostles to recognize when the gospel has been accepted, and therefore the sins are forgiven. Okay, that's not really what the text says, though. So let's just take the text at face value there. Okay. Okay. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. It doesn't say if they hear the gospel, then they're forgiven. Now, obviously, if you hear the gospel, you're going to repent from your sins and, and all that. How about afterward? After we're baptized, we're still going to mess up when we're baptized. So we're baptized, we're forgiven. You know, what original sins washed away. Any sins we've committed up to that point are washed away. Confession renews that. It's that reestablishing, the ironing out the relationship, if you will. It's the forgiveness of sins. Jesus gave his authority pretty plainly here in John chapter 20 of the ability of the authority to forgive sins in his name. So I think that it's a very powerful thing right there. Now, sometimes, sometimes we could say that, Hey, okay. Is there any circumstances in scripture where penance was given to another repentant sinner? And I, I saw something written by Dave Armstrong, who's a pretty, he's an awesome apologist. He does a lot of writing. And he writes something in regard to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1 through 5, that I wanted to share. And this is what he says in, in, in this passage. It's actually reported that there is immorality among you, and of a kind that is not found even among pagans. For a man is living with his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. 
For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And if present, I have already pronounced judgment in the name of the Lord Jesus on the man who has done such a thing. When you are assembled and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that a spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And Dave Armstrong wrote this in an article that he wrote for National Catholic Register, um, Biblical Proofs for Confession. So he lists, he lists this passage here. Penance for the unrepentant sinner. This is pretty grievous sin. He's kind of sleeping with his stepmom. Okay, pretty bad thing. And he's saying, there's a penance. If he wants to prove he's sorry, he needs to go away for a little bit because this is good for his soul. Okay. St. Paul says that and the God, power of God will work on him. The Holy Spirit's going to work on him if he's away. Excommunication isn't a damnation to hell. I think sometimes we, especially as a Protestant, when I read excommunication, I read it as a, a condemnation to hell. That's not what it is. It's supposed to be a wake-up call. Okay, it's a it's a therapy, if you will, to get the unrepentant sinner to realize his error, his folly, and repent and rejoin the community. That's what it is. It's supposed to be medicine, and it's right. tough medicine, very tough medicine, but it's necessary for our soul. And so Paul is telling the church in Corinth here, we need to give this guy some tough medicine because he's not getting it. Maybe he'll get it now because we're, we're, we need to be concerned about his soul. And this is going to be the wake-up call he needs is to be, you know, Say, hey, you're doing something wrong here. You can't participate in the community. Wake up. And so that's uh, something that St. Paul wrote there. First Corinthians is a great book. We mentioned it before the break for First Corinthians 11. But there's so much great stuff in Corinthians we go on forever with. Yeah. Um, yeah. And how about, how about First Timothy one uh, nineteen? It says, holding faith and good conscience by rejecting conscience, certain persons have made shipwreck of their faith. Among them, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered to Satan, that they may not to blaspheme. So naming sinners, so they, they could repent too. I mean, it's it's a thing. Now, obviously, it's not something specifically related to confession, but it leads to it. Hmm. Okay, because at times we need to, we need to be upfront with people and say, hey, what you're doing is wrong. And of course we do it in a loving way. We don't go up yelling at people or screaming at them, but in a loving way, say, Hey, I'm concerned. I've noticed this and that. And you no, know, I love you. I care about you. I want to see you in heaven. And this is not the way to go about it. So hopefully it gets them to confession. So these are some of the things that maybe we do, but there's a lot of other verses, Gary, that talk about confession. One of the ones that the church cites in the catechism is uh, James chapter 5, of course. Yeah. Uh, verses 14 through 16. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick man and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power in its effects. Now, of course, this is also a verse that we use for anointing of the sick, but anointing of the sick also has confession built into it, has reconciliation built into it. Confess your sins one to another. So we are confessing and earlier in this in this book of James, talk about the elder. We're confessing to the elder, therefore the priest, the presbyter. The, okay, we're confessing to him, 
and therefore we're getting it off our chest. He's he's absolving it. We're hearing his words of absolution, and we have the strength to go forth, knowing that we are forgiven in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to live a life of virtue, strength, knowing that his grace is amazing. Because no matter what we've done, if we're repentant, we're sorry for it, we confess it, we are forgiven. But we need to take we need to do that a lot more, in my opinion. That's just me though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I love James five. It's like a multitasker uh, it is. passage because you have anointing of the sick. So you can establish that sacrament there. And you also have the forgiveness of sins through the prayers of the, the presbyter or elder. And um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's a great passage to have in your back pocket because there's all sorts of things you could pull out from it. It really is. There's a lot, there's a lot, there's a ton there. Confession, obviously, is a big one. Anointing of the sick is a big one. But we, we see the authority, though, here. That let him call for the elders of the church. Mm-hmm. Well, let's do some, let's do some uh, scripture expo- exposition, if you will, okay? If later in verse 16, they were saying to confess our sins one to another, and the elder is mentioned in the previous verse, some, that means that we're supposed to confess to the elder if you want to take it that route. We can't take those verses one from another. Now, we can get a lot from it that way. But, yes, maybe if we harm another brother, yes, say, I'm sorry to the brother. And then we go to the elder and say what we've done, and we get the absolution from God. So there's a lot of things we can take from it. Absolutely. We're chatting with William Hemsworth, uh, the Bible Catholic channel on YouTube, and we're talking about the biblical roots of confession. Stay tuned. More to come right after this. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with William Hemsworth of the Bible Catholic uh, YouTube channel, also WilliamHemsworth.com, talking about confession and its biblical roots. And, uh, man, yeah, the, there's so much there, William. I mean, just unpack like something like James 5 or John 20. Uh, you know, uh, like I said, we could probably spend a whole program just unpacking just those two verses. Most definitely. There's so much there. And Gary, if it's okay, I wanted to go back really quick to Gospel of Matthew. Okay. There's a, a couple things in there I forgot to go over. But of course, we first, we talked about Matthew uh, 16, 19, and 18, 18 specifically, where Christ says, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Uh, the Catechism in paragraph 553 says that Christ communicated... Not only authority to pronounce doctrinal judgments and to make displayer decisions in the church, but also the authority to absolve sins here to the apostles. Now, to our Protestant friends out there, and I was, I was, I was definitely among that. It was kind of an unsettling thing. Okay, God giving the authority to man to forgive sins, because sometimes our mind goes to the, I don't know. To the extremes, if you will, and I and I, I come in. I'm coming into this when I'm teaching second graders too. Well, what if the priest tells my parents what I did? You know, all this stuff, and 
there's the seal of the confessional. The priest can't tell anyone anything about what you went in there for. Period. End of story. If they do, basically not going to be a priest anymore, okay? Like it's, it, the church takes it very seriously. But Jesus has the power to open and shut heaven. But he communicated that authority to the apostles and to his successors. And paragraph 1445 of the Catechism puts it pretty well. It says the words bind and loose mean whomever you exclude from your communion will be excluded from communion with God. Whomever you receive anew into your communion, God will welcome back into his. Reconciliation with the church is inseparable from reconciliation with God. So when we go back to those passages that we talked about in Leviticus, it really comes full circle here. Okay. Where it, way back in Leviticus, if you sinned and you sinned against your neighbor and they let you couldn't partake in certain things. And we see that in the new covenant as well. And through confession, reconciliation, we're put back into good standing with the church and with God. It's, it comes full circle. It's really amazing how scripture works like that. So I just wanted to cover that real quick. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very good. So, um, uh, so we laid out like a huge swath of, of biblical backgrounds for uh, confession. Right. What would be the typical objections against confession? I think you already kind of touched on one or two of those, but if there's if there was a top objection, what would it be? The top one when I was a Protestant, I'll just say this was, you know, confession just means you can go on, you can you can you can do you can sit you can sin however you want during the week. You can go to confession on Saturday, be forgiven, and do it all over again. I used that so many times it was sickening. Um, that's false. Okay, for for the sacrament to be valid, there has to be contrition. We have to be repentant. We have to want not to sin again. Now, obviously, the church knows, God knows that some, we are going to mess up, but there has to be that, that want there. So the grace, of, the grace of confession helps us avoid future, but it's not a guarantee against future sins. So it's not a, it's not a sin all you want card, like one of those, yeah. you know, get out of jail free cards in Monopoly. It's not what confession is. You go to confession, you realize that you've done something wrong. You, you, you know it. You're resolving not to do it again. And you're recognizing that you need the grace of God to not only forgive you, but to keep you from doing it. So if you're going in unrepentant saying, okay, I went to the club last night. I met someone. I'm going to go to confession, but I plan on doing that again tonight. Sorry, done, invalid. You're still in a state of sin, period. That's not a permission slip to keep sinning. That's not what it is at all. So that's, that's really, that was my biggest objection, honestly. And I, Gary, I can't tell you how many people, how many Catholics I tripped up with that. They didn't know. And it's, it's, it's unfortunate because it's really basic. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, yeah. But it's confession is not a permission slip. If you, if you're unrepentant going in there, it just doesn't work. And I mean, another, another one is why do I have to go to a priest for confession instead of going straight to God? I mean, after all, the Bible says that there was one God and there was one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ, you know, first, first Timothy uh, two fifteen, right? Right. Now everything's from God period. Everything's from God. And 
I'm going to, I'm going to read something from, um, uh, what passage is it? I think it's second Corinthians. All is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, yes, yeah, it's second Corinthians, the ministry of reconciliation. So that's St. Paul, uh, second Corinthians five, verse 18. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. St. Paul goes on to say, that is, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We beseech you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I don't know. To me, that's pretty strong evidence for the sacrament of reconciliation. That's from St. Paul in 2 Corinthians. And so the apostles and successors, bishops and priests, mm-hmm. called ambassadors of Christ in there. They're on a mission from Jesus to forgive, to bring people to Christ. So all of it is from God. So if we're working within the will of God, we're really working within the mediaship of Christ because we're within his will. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's another big objection there. Those are, those are really probably the big two that I, I don't want to say had fun with. That's not the best choice of words, but that I levied a lot. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. The, the, uh, the ones that you would most likely use, uh, as a right. weapon against it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so it's not neither or. It's not like either God forgives our sins or a man forgives our sins. No. It's no, really God is strong enough to forgive our sins through, you know, his ministers. Right. And and that's, that's really powerful when you think about how frail we are as people, that God, the creator of the universe, when we look around, we see everything that God has done. He still wants to work through us. It's really humbling. Mm-hmm. It, it really It really is. So. God works through us. Um, he wants us with him. That's really what confession is all about. God wants us to be with him in heaven. But for us to do that, we need to change. And we rely on his grace to change. We rely on the grace. We realize that we've done things wrong, that we're sinners, and we repent of those things we've done wrong. We accept his grace, and we hear from the minister, I absolve you. You're forgiven. Powerful words to people, really. When I talk to people about confession, and when they go for the first time and they hear those words, they come out crying. Just like me. Every time I go in to this day, I come out crying. Mm. Because I don't know if I just take those words for granted or if I just forget how powerful they are. But when I hear those words, the Holy Spirit, I, I swear, just not only does a huge weight come off my shoulders, but there's the peace in my heart that only God could give. That comes from his forgiveness. That's what we get in confession. We can definitely go to God, definitely go to God when you realize you've done something wrong. Say, I'm sorry, I'm going to get to confession as soon as I can. You know, make the appointment, go at the assigned time, whatever the case is. But there's nothing like hearing those words. And God knows we need to hear those words. When you look at the sacraments, Gary, there's all these things that we take for granted. In the Eucharist, for example, we have we have wine, we have unleavened bread. Very modest things, but we witness a miracle and they trans in every every time at Mass when they become the body and blood of Christ. In the confessional, the simple human the simple words of someone saying in the person of Christ, I absolve you, is such a powerful thing. All 
God uses material things to convey his grace. It's, it's just so powerful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And this idea of, uh, you know, um, that, uh, that it detracts from the glory of God by, uh, no. you know, if this is the fact. And William, you know, one thing I always like to bring up is what manifests the strength of a person, uh, 50 push-ups or 50 one-handed push-ups? You know, if you, if you do a push-up with your hand behind your back, obviously that demonstrates you're more powerful. Well, right. I mean, what would demonstrate God's power more? You know, him directly acting with us or having one arm behind his back and using us frail, you know, fallen human beings. Right. Yeah, exactly. And the fact that he uses us is, yeah, it's baffling to me when I just sit down and think about it. I mean, when we think about all that we're capable of, good and bad, but God still chooses to use us. I mean, it's, it's unfathomable. And I see that in the history of the church as well. When I was discerning the church, when I was looking seriously at the claims, I forget where I read it, but I read if the church is still standing after all these years, after all the bad things people in it have done, it's got to be of God because it's still here. It's a supernatural thing. And I don't know, to me, confession is, is that he uses, he uses the priest to convey the forgiveness of God. And the forgiveness of God is one of those things that the world just needs. The world needs to experience it and the world would be a lot better place. Um, really, if everyone did experience it a little more, I think. Amen. Well, we only have a minute left. Uh, tell us a little bit about what's uh, cooking on your channel. Well, we got some great stuff coming up. On Tuesday, I'm going to be talking with Dr. Steve Christie. He's not the author of Why Protestant Bibles Are Bigger. He's a, he's a medical doctor. We're going to talk about pro-life, uh, pro-life, um, well, answering issues about abortion from a, mm -hmm. from a Catholic perspective. I'm going to talk with Charles Johnston. He's the author of a great book called The Beauty of the Mass. We're going to talk about what converts can expect uh, during the Easter Triduum coming up. Nice. And um, later on this month, on the 26th, I'm going to talk with Dustin Quick about temple theology. Then on April 2nd, we're going to talk with Mike Aquilina again about how the church fathers read the Bible. So we have a lot of stuff going on over the next couple of weeks. Really excited about it. And I'm thankful for everyone out there that listens. And thank you for the emails and everything. And Gary, thank you for all your support and for having me on. Oh, hey, it's our pleasure. I mean, I, I love having you on. It's always uh, an education. And it's just fun to talk to you, despite the fact that you have warmer weather than I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, William, hey, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Gary. Take care. God bless. All right, William Hemsworth. Check out his channel. It's called... Uh, the Bible Catholic on the uh, YouTube channel. And, man, the hour's flowing. Coming up next, High Impact Catholic Talk coming at you with the Terry and Justin Show. Thank you so much for listening. God willing, we'll be back again next week to do this thing we call Hands-On Apologetics. Bye-bye, everyone.